The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Good morning, Mountain Park. Uh, My name is Beth, and I am a pastor on staff here. Um, I work with the students in our student ministry, which I absolutely love, but I'm very excited to be here with you today. Uh, The past couple weeks, if you've been with us, you know that uh, we've been going through this series called AD, which is the year of our Lord. And we've been talking a lot about who God is, how do we have a relationship with him, how do we follow this person, how do we make him the Lord of our life. Now today we're going to be breaking from that series and we're going to talk about something a little bit different that is actually coming out of the Bible reading that we have challenged um, the congregation to be a part of. So if you don't know this, a couple weeks ago Alan talked about how there is a year-long reading plan of the Bible that is available to you on our website and we want to invite you to participate with us in going through the Bible through the next, um, the course of the next year. So if you um, are doing that, great, you'll know right where we're talking about today. If you haven't been doing that, that's totally fine too. You are invited to join us. It should be a great opportunity to dig into some scripture and to figure out who this God that we serve is. Um, Right now, we've just finished up the book of Exodus. We're about to finish up the book of Exodus, and I want to dive into that story so we can get some of the great things out of there and learn something really that has been challenging me in my own personal journey for the past six months or so. So let's go ahead and pray together before we jump into the word and um, ask God to be here in this place. Father God, I just ask that you would um, open up our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have for us. Father, I thank you that you are a God that is um, fully present in this room right now. May we glorify you and honor you In your holy and precious name, amen. So if you're not familiar with the context of, uh, or the the context of of what happens in the book of Exodus, I want to go ahead and unpack that for you so we can all be on the same page. Basically, there was a group of people called the Israelites that God decided this was going to be the group that he was going to make his promise with, that he was going to show them what a relationship with him really looks like so that the Israelites could go out and show the whole rest of the world what that looked like, that they could bless the whole world through the relationship they had with God. Now the Israelites wind up in a country called Egypt and the reason they're in Egypt is because there's no food anywhere else. There's a huge famine in the land and the Israelites um, go to Egypt to get food because of God's provision. Egypt is the only place there's food. So they head down to Egypt, they're hanging out there, they wind up staying there for decades and generations, and quickly the Israelites become this huge, huge people group. They grow and they grow and they grow until the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, looks at them and says, you're really big, and decides that because they are so big, they are actually a threat to his power. So he decides to enslave them, to put them um, to work, doing lots of different work projects. And then, despite the fact that he's done that, they continue to grow and grow and grow. And out of fear, he decides, all right, this is what we're going to do. Whenever there is a baby boy that is born, we will kill that baby. And that will be our population control for these Israelites. Well, there was a mother at that time 
who had a baby boy and decided that that was not the fate that she wanted her child to suffer. So she hid the baby boy till he was a little bit older and then put him in a basket, put the basket in the river and sent him floating down the river, hoping that God would provide for that child. And somehow that would be a fate better than sure death. Well, what happens is that baby actually winds up floating into the presence of Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter falls in love with the baby and decides, I will name him Moses and I will raise him as my own son. So Moses grows up and becomes somebody in Pharaoh's courts and he becomes like the king's own son. One day he's walking around and he sees this Egyptian and the Egyptian is beating an Israelite and out of anger, He goes after the Egyptian and he kills him. But then he realizes, oh, I'm gonna be in big trouble. So he runs away, he flees Egypt, he winds up going into the desert, he becomes a shepherd. And for 40 years he lives like a a shepherd in, in the desert. I mean, that's what he does, right? Until God encounters him and says, time's up. I want you to go back to Egypt. My people are still slaves there. I have heard their cries to be free, and I want you to be the one who leads them out of Egypt. I will be with you through this whole thing, but you are to be their leader. Moses says no, God says yes, Moses says okay. So Moses goes back to Egypt, he stands in front of Pharaoh, says, Pharaoh, God has told me you are supposed to let these people go. And Pharaoh says, no. So through the power of God, Moses calls down plagues on the Egyptian people and their land. There's flies, there's frogs, there's water that turns into blood. I mean, there's all these really weird things. Until finally, the firstborn son of Pharaoh dies because of one of these plagues. Pharaoh is so saddened and so angry. He says, get these people out of my sight. Send them into the wilderness. Let them go. And so there's great rejoicing and celebration and joy as they leave Egypt and they say, yes, we are headed to the promised land, which was this place that God promised them that was to be flowing with milk and honey, which is kind of a fancy way of saying it's going to have everything that you need. And so they're off to the promised land. But as we read through the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and continue on and on, we realize that God doesn't care so much about getting them to the promised land, that end location, as he does about teaching them this one thing. You are to radically trust in me. You are to be still and I am to fight for you. And that is kind of where I've been camping out for the past six months, that God has been teaching me over and over and over again, you are to be still, I'm gonna fight for you, and the only way this is gonna happen is if you radically trust in me. So I wanna dive into the book of Exodus in chapter 14. This is kind of the first test of the Israelites for them to see how God is gonna be doing this whole thing, how God is gonna be fighting for them. So if you wanna open to chapter 14, we're gonna start reading in verse five. This is the place where Pharaoh has finally said, all right, Israelites, get out of here. But then he changes his mind. So verse five, 
When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. All the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots, his horsemen and his troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Haharoth opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because that there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. I mean, in this moment, this massive group of people are, are angry with their leader. I mean, this is this mob mentality. They see in the horizon that there is an army that is about to destroy them, and they've got nowhere to go because behind them, there is a vast sea. They're like caged rabbits or something that you cage and then you kill, right? I don't know what that analogy is, but <laughs> they're stuck, they're trapped, and they're afraid. And so this mob mentality rises up, and, and we've experienced this because we've probably been to Walmart on ba Black Friday, right? This, I want that thing, and I gotta have it. And, and, and this is what Moses says to them in verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You need only be still is what Moses says. Could you imagine if you were in the Israelite camp, you would just turn to Moses and be like, are you kidding me? Be still? Now, the visual that I get in my head is actually from a movie that came out several years ago, but is still pretty popular. You've probably seen it. It's the movie Braveheart. And in this movie, there's, um, there's the Scottish rebels who are trying to get their freedom from the English. And they're fighting this war, but, but they don't really have any weapons. They don't really have any training or anything like that. But the English have cavalry and they have horses and they have all the stuff you need to really win this war. And the Scottish have been doing okay, but eventually they get to a place where they realize eventually the English are gonna send all their cavalry, all their horses after us. And what's happened in the past is, is we've been totally trampled. Everybody dies. And so William Wallace, who is their leader, decides, you know what, I have a plan. But if it's going to work, you have got to be really, really brave. And this is how it looks. Can you imagine the fear of that moment? And, and you can even see on the, the, the Scottish people's face, they're like looking back and forth to each other. Oh my gosh, are we really doing this? Are we still here? Are we still here? Everybody's still here? Okay, I'm still here. Are you still here? Okay, we're not running, we're, right? Until, and William Wallace is calling out, hold, hold steady, be still, 
don't move. I mean, that is a moment of sheer panic and terror. Now, I hope that if that was me, I would ducktail and run. Like, I'd be finding the closest cave to just hide in. I'll stay there the rest of my life. That's fine as long as I don't have to fight anybody. Like, that just terrifies me. Now, there are a lot of, um, a lot of us in this room who, th- there's probably a few of us who have faced something like this, have been to war, have faced the, the army coming towards you. But, but most of us in this room have no idea what that experience looks like. We have no idea the, the amount of fear and panic and, and how much you've got to hold together your entire being to keep yourself right where you're supposed to be. But I bet everyone in this room has had a moment where you've had a similar sort of, I don't know what's going to happen, and it scared you out of your mind. Like perhaps your boss has called you and said, hey, I need you to come into the office because there's some restructuring that's happening in the company, and we need to discuss some of those different possibilities. Or, or your spouse sends you a text message that says, hey, we got to talk. Give me a call. Or you get a message from your doctor on your voicemail that says, hey, the lab results are in, and I need you to come in tomorrow because we need to discuss some options. Or your 11-year-old comes up to you and says, hey, guess what? I've got a boyfriend. <laughs> Yay. So good. And he's 16. Fantastic, great, (laughs) right? Or your college student comes up to you who has just started law school, and although you co-signed for all of the loans, is now saying, you know what, I think that God's really calling me to be a missionary in Mbabwe. And all you're thinking is, I don't think Mbabwe's a real place. Just, I'm not sure. Or... Maybe it's some stirring inside of you that says, I think that God is calling me to a career change. I think this isn't where I'm supposed to be anymore. Or he's calling you into a place of deeper relationship with him, and that very idea of what that means scares you out of your pants because you have no idea what you're supposed to do with that. We've all kind of faced these different things, and we're not really sure what to do with them. Now, there's this guy, his name's Richard Rohr, and he talks about these spaces of unknown um, as liminal space, which I think is a word he made up, but he says that it's from this Greek, or this Latin word limina, which means threshold, that it's kind of like this place where you can bear no more, right? And he says that um, at the core of this is that it's the place where you have left your comfort zone, but you haven't yet arrived at the promised land. He continues with this. It's the place of wait the place of waiting is a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be but where the biblical God is always leading them. It's where you have left the tried and true but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It's where you are definitely you are finally out of the way. It is when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. Basically, it's that any place where you want to run as fast as you can away from it, or you feel a deep sense of obligation to fix it and fix it fast, because it is so uncomfortable to keep it lingering. But it's the exact place that God calls us 
because it's the place where he can teach us to radically trust in him. And that's not easy because it means letting him fight for us. Now, I'm not very good at letting God fight for me. And I learned, I, I, I think I've always known that I don't really like other people fighting for me. And it played out as young as seventh grade for me. I was not a very cool seventh grader. Uh, I know if you look at me now, you'd be like, oh, she was probably a cool seventh grader. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, but nobody is, right, in seventh grade. Nobody's super cool in seventh grade. Even the cool people who think they're cool, they're not really all that cool. Sorry, seventh graders who are in the room. Okay, moving on, right? Seventh grade. Um, I was walking from lunch to math class with one of my only friends, Emily Dudley, I think her name was. And um, I w was a seventh grader who didn't have a filter, which is probably hard to imagine. I didn't have a filter, I was really loud and outspoken, and I said things that I shouldn't have said. And so at lunch that day, I'm sure I said something to somebody that I shouldn't have said. And, and we're walking to lunch, and Emily says, hey, they were making fun of you in there. And she goes, but I fought for you, as if it was this proud thing, but I fought for you. And I look at her, and I'm just like, I don't need anybody to fight for me. And then I see her face goes from this proud confidence to this deflated, like, oh. And, and I know that that's not good, so I turn back at her to try to make this all better, and I say, but thanks anyways. And we keep walking to math class, right? And for whatever reason, that sticks out in my head like a sore thumb. I don't remember a lot from seventh grade year, but I remember that. Because I realized that at the age of 12, I knew that it was not culturally acceptable to let somebody else fight for you. It was like everything in the world was telling me, you fight your own battles. You don't let anybody else stand up for you. You stand up for yourself. And if you need help, you better not go let the world know that you need help. You do it quietly. You, you ask secretly. And then you feel embarrassed and humiliated about doing it. But that may be the world we live in. But that's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve actually says something like this. He says, um, I want to fight for you. I'm going to fight for you. You just need to be still and rest. I got this one. That's the God that we serve. So imagine with me for a second that we have all, um, I purchased tickets for all of you to the WWF Wrestling Championship. You're welcome. Uh, we're all going. You have no choice in the matter. We're all going. And in the middle of this wrestling championship, uh, all of a sudden, my name is called to the stage. And I have been selected because of my amazing uh, strength and physical physique to wrestle in the ring with Stone Cold Steve Austin, 20-time <laughs> champion of WWF, right? And I get into the ring, and I'm pumped about everything. And the announcer sees me and is like, uh, you know what? because you are the way you are. Um, we're going to go ahead and give you a tag team partner of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. <laughs> right? Crowd goes wild. I acknowledge the pairing. I see that we are on the same team. I see that I can tag team out. But I turn to The Rock and I say, oh, thank you, The Rock. But 
I'm really fine. I've got this. I've got massive pregnancy strength and raging hormones. I can take care of all of this. You sit this one out. You take a breather. I'm going to go ahead and fight this one. I got it. That's ridiculous, right? That's totally ridiculous. And yet, on a daily basis, this is probably more like what we do to God. We turn to God, the champion of heaven and earth, the supreme ruler who holds all things together in his hands, the one who has reigned victoriously from age to age. We turn to him and we say, I got this one. It's ridiculous. But that's very much what I do in my everyday life. God, you sit this one out. I'll go ahead and fight this one. It's, it's like at our core, for some reason, we are convinced that we are better fighters than God is. And, and some of us, um, sometimes even me, I, I kind of doubt that God can even win it all. Is he capable of winning? I better fight this one. Or sometimes what's harder and comes up for me a lot is what God is fighting for, that, 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 that he might not do it right. That somehow what he, the outcome he's going to fight for is going to be radically different from the outcome that I want. And I'm not willing to take that chance. So God, you sit this one out, I got it. I'm going to fight this one. Our... Our desire to keep God out of the ring, the boxing ring, the fighting ring, reflects our ability to trust him, our trust in him. If we don't let him fight for us, we don't have a lot of trust in who he is and what he's trying to do in our lives. It's like this. The conversation goes with God. Uh, God, I know you are the supreme ruler of the universe, and I just sang all these songs about how great you are and Hosanna and all that stuff, but I'm going to go ahead and take this one for you. I, I'm going to fight this one. And God looks at us and says, no, I'm going to fight this one. Um, okay, well, if you're going to fight this one, what am I supposed to do? Um, you're supposed to be still. Okay, well, I don't really know how to do that so good. Yeah, I know. Right, I, I got this um, Facebook message from a student this past week, and Facebook message is kind of like email, but students actually read it. And so I got this message from her. She knows that I'm sharing this. I got this message from her, and I love what she says. This is the original uh, script of her message. You can tell by the fact that there's no capitalization, so I didn't alter this at all. Hey, Beth. I find myself having a hard time letting go of things. I feel like I'm always in control and it's wearing on me. I know God is supposed to be in control, but I struggle with becoming disattached to things. My heart is telling me to just surrender myself to God, but I don't trust him as much as I used to. Is there a way that I can grow in our relationship while having six honors classes, piano practice, film school, sports, and a social life with friends and family? Now, the reason that I love this is because this is the original thing. I didn't, I didn't edit this out or anything. She immediately makes a connection between her ability to trust God and her busy schedule. She realizes that there may be a problem with these two things coexisting. And so my answer to her was, no, probably not. 
There is nothing wrong with you having six honors classes, piano, practice, film school, la, 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 la. There's nothing wrong with those things. However, if you do not have time to sit and be still and know God, there is no way for you to continue to grow in your trust of him. And if this is how our 10th graders are living, I have a feeling that our adults are not living a whole lot differently. It is really, really hard to be still in the normal mess of life. And when stuff gets crazy and stuff starts to become scary, it's even harder to be still. There's this um, book um, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And it's a really great book. It's super short. It's a work of fiction. And it's basically these letters between these two demons. And the older demon, the older, wiser demon, is trying to instruct the younger, naive demon how to, um, how to tempt people and, and ha- how to do his job really well. And one of the things he says is um, the best way to keep Christians or anybody from trusting in God is to keep them so busy they have no time to be still. They have no time to spend with God. They have no time to listen to his truths or his word. This is where I live. That is, that is totally describes me in every sense of it. I told you that I've been camping out here for about six months, and three months ago, I started waking up in the middle of the night at about 3 a.m. every night, unable to fall back asleep. And my mind would just race with all of the stuff that's going on, all of the ministry things, all the job things, all the family things, all the personal things, everything would just be racing through my head. And at first, my response was, all right, if I just stay up tonight, I can fix it all. If I just use these extra three hours, I can make it all go away. And so I would stay awake and I would spend the extra time to try to figure out how am I going to do this and how's this going to play out and what's this going to look like. And it wasn't working because I kept waking up and I kept feeling unsettled and I kept feeling the fear and the panic of that army coming towards me. And finally, I don't know what it was, but there was something in me that reminded me, be still, be still, be still. I will fight for you. So I opened up my journal and I just started writing. And I didn't write like long prose of whatever. It was one sentence things. I will not be anxious. I will be still. God is a better fighter than me. God will fight for me. I will not fight this battle. I will rest. And just reminding myself over and over of the truths that I had been learning but had yet to put into practice. I will be still. You will fight for me. And slowly in the stillness of that night, I began to learn what it meant to trust God with this and with this and with this. But it takes that ability to be still, that ability to sit back and just remember what it means to trust God. Now, The quote that I read you earlier from Richard Rohr, I didn't give you the whole thing. Here's the end of it. He says, if you're not trained in how to hold your anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run. Anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. The problem with running away from those moments 
is that you will never get to experience God's salvation that is coming. If you run, you will miss out on that salvation. In, in, um, in the New Testament, there's this Greek word, it's pistuo, and this Greek word can be translated one of three ways. It can be translated as faith, belief, and trust. Now, faith and belief for me are two really tricky concepts. I don't really understand fully what it means to have faith in God. I don't really get that all the time. Belief too, I don't really understand. Now, trust, I can start to wrap my head around trusting God to fight for me. I'll be still, you fight. I can start to get that. So this word, pistuo, shows up in all of these different, very popular New Testament scriptures that talk about salvation. So you've probably, hopefully, heard these verses before. Here's just three of them. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever pistuo, whoever has faith, belief, trusts in God, in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and pistuo, if you have trust in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who pistuo, who trusts, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Gentile, right? This word shows up over and over, and and it shows us that there is this connection between trust and salvation, that maybe our salvation doesn't come because of how good we fight. Maybe our salvation doesn't come because we know all the right answers or we do the right things. It comes because we trust, we pursue, we have faith, we believe We have radical trust in God. We be still, and God fights for us. So the question is, what does your trust look like? Do you trust more in God, or do you trust in more in your own abilities, your own instincts? Who is doing the fighting for you? Now, in the midst of fear, and those, man, those moments of panic, oftentimes what I do is I'm looking for me-sized solutions. When God says, no, I want you to have God-sized trust. Imagine in the moment with the, with the, uh, the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites. Imagine in that moment where the army is coming near them. They have no idea what God is about to do. And if they run... They will miss out on something incredible. They will miss out on their salvation. But that's all they know in that moment. And yet here's what happened. Because they are still, this is the kind of salvation that God brings. Continue to read with me in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israelite army, withdrew and went behind them. 
The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the two armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into, conclusion, into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. This is the kind of radical salvation that God wants to bring. But it only happens if we have the radical trust that compels us to be still and let him fight for us. It all begins with that. I mean, I want to see in the things that I face in my life, I want to see this type of salvation. The one that I couldn't ever imagine. The one that I don't want the me-sized solution. I want the God-sized trust that brings this type of salvation. That brings the one that, that, that brings honor and glory to God. That nobody else could say, oh, Moses did that. Or the Egyptians did that. Or Israelite did that. No, that God is the only one who could have done that. Because it was so big and powerful and miraculous. I want to see that in my life. Now, I don't know what sort of armies you're facing today. I'm, I'm not really sure the sorts of liminal space that you're living in. But the truth is, is that God wants, is calling each one of us to be still so that he can fight for us. He's trying to teach us this concept of radical trust. He cares a lot less about getting us to that promised land and a lot more about, will you trust me? while we're getting there. So this morning, what I want to invite you to do is to respond to God. Um, there's a lot of stations set up around the room. Uh, you'll find a description of those stations in your program if you want to look over that. But there's also some blank notes in your program. And if you just need to sit there and be still for a little bit and just ride out, just like I did that night at 3 a.m., I will be still. I will trust in you. You are a better fighter than me. If you need to, to take that stillness to just remind yourself of who God is and the trust that he has called us to, I want to invite you to do that. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father God, I thank you that you, um, you give us these stories so that, so that we can see who you are in them. 
so that we can understand a little piece of what you're trying to do in our own life and the glory that you're trying to bring to this earth. Father God, I ask that you would teach us what it means to be still and let you fight for us. It is so hard, and yet we want, as your people, to radically trust in you. Amen.